You're listening to Sports Connections with David Smale, the show that brings you a fun and intimate look into connections throughout sports. Now here's your host, David Smale. Dick Cagle began his career as a sports writer just after his junior year of high school in Belleville, Illinois. After getting his degree in journalism from the University of Missouri, he worked at several different newspapers, covering his first World Series in 1964 when the Cardinals played the New York Yankees. He was editor-in-chief of the Sporting News from 1979 to 85, went back to beat writing with the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and he moved to Kansas City to cover the Royals for the Kansas City Star in 1988, switched to the MLB.com beat in 2004, where he stayed till his retirement at the end of the 2014 season. Hale was named the the 2021 recipient of the J.G. Taylor Spink Award, later renamed the Baseball Writers Association of America Career Excellence Award. It's given annually to recipients honored during ceremonies at the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. Dick is a Hall of Fame person as well as a Hall of Fame writer. Dick, welcome to Sports Connections. Thank you, David. Glad to be here. So let's... Let's talk first about the Hall of Fame. I, I got a chance to go there a number of years ago. Still one of my uh, all-time favorite things to do. You went twice this year. You went once to receive your award early in the summer, and then you went again in September for the induction of the class of 2021. What does it feel like to be a Hall of Famer? Well, it feels uh, kind of unreal, really, because uh, – as uh, my bride Betty said, that it's kind of like being in a movie. You're not, it doesn't <laughs> seem real for a while until you get home, and you know you're surrounded by uh, all these uh, Hall of Famers and important people, and uh, so on and so forth. And and the Hall of Fame uh, just does a first class job. I mean, they're they're a first rate organization uh, run by uh, Jane Forbes Clark and. Uh, we had a great time. Uh, I got a rare double header, David, because, uh, you know, we got to go in July for the, uh, the award that I got. And then uh, they invited us back for the big show with uh, Ted Simmons, Marvin Miller, Larry Walker, and Derek Jeter, which was, uh, of course, a, a big deal. And, and unfortunately, with the pandemic uh, still hanging on and that kind of thing, uh, the crowd wasn't nearly as big as it probably would have been had uh, there been no restrictions, but uh, Derek Jeter was, of course, a very popular guy there in New York. And, oh, sure. Uh, I think they had about, uh, I think the estimates were 20, 25,000 people, uh, something like that. But uh, the record, I think, was uh, 83,000 uh, in 2007. Um, that was when uh, Cal Ripken Jr. and Tony Gwynn went in. Yeah, yeah. Along along with Denny Matthews, of course. Yep. I think uh, he and, and the sports writer Rick Hummel were the big draws there. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. yeah. I'm, I'm sure Denny will tell you it was him rather than Ripken and Gwynn. Uh. <laughs> yeah, but but I, I, I if you let me digress for just a minute. I I had a nice uh, visit with uh, Ted Simmons. Uh, of course, I covered Ted when uh, he was with the Cardinals mm-hmm. in the 1970s when I was. Post dispatch in St. Louis, and uh, there I reminded him of a great story uh, during spring training in 1978. The Cardinals and the Phillies decided to go to the Dominican Republic and play three games, three exhibition games. But during a, a game with the Phillies, 
deep in the island. I'm talking the, the Dominican Republic in the San Francisco Gimar Corres. Uh, the game was down there and they were playing and uh, the crowd was excited, but uh, the manager, Vern Rapp, decided to take four of his starting Cardinals out of the game, and send them back with a car um, back to Santo Domingo, the hotel, so you rest up for the after- next afternoon's game. But So I, I rode the team bus that night after the game was over. So we're going along this dark Dominican Republic highway. This is 1978, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the side of the road, we spotted four players in cardinal uniforms hitchhiking next to a broken down. <laughs> down it was Ted Simmons, Lou Brock, another Hall of Famer, Keith Hernandez, Gary Templeton, the short stuff. And well, we, the bus did stop and pick them up and take them back. But I, I told Simmons, uh, he reminded Simmons about that. And he said, oh, yeah. He said, when I heard the engine in that car, Rattling away, I knew we were in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> That's a cardinal story, but <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, now, be- between times uh, with the Post Dispatch, you you work for the, or you're the managing editor or editor in chief, rather, of, of the Sporting News. How cool was it to receive the J.G. Taylor Spink Award, which was named after the founder of the Sporting News? Well, that was, uh, that was very interesting because uh, I never knew Mr. Spink himself. I knew his son, uh, C.C. Johnson Spink. Uh, they were big on initials, by the way, in the Spink family. Um, <laughs> but but uh, uh, I, I never, Mr. Spink had passed away by, by the time they hired me in uh, uh, 1965. But um, uh, it, it was very, uh, very interesting publication to work for. And I had... Uh, two tours there. Uh, one was a young editor in uh, 1965 to 68. And then um, uh, I left there and, and uh, actually uh, uh, ended up working for the Post-Dispatch and Sporting News again as uh, the uh, editor-in-chief and then uh, a columnist for the St. Louis Gold Democrats. So I... Uh, I covered the waterfront there and uh, along the Mississippi River pretty well. There you go. Now, I, you've basically spent your whole career covering baseball. Has baseball always been your first love? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I grew up in the uh, 1940s, 50s, uh, we played every day of the summer as kids. You know, we kept up on the players' stats and uh, uh, followed the teams basically the Cardinals there in Belleville, Illinois, which was, you know, right across the river. And um, uh, we were just caught up in baseball. And of course, there weren't as many major league players or teams to keep up with in those days. There were only 16 teams, losing eight in the National League, which we concentrated on. And of course, uh, the Browns were there for a while until they moved to Baltimore. But uh, uh, even when it rained, we'd, we'd We'd go in my friend's uh, houses and we'd, we'd play all-star baseball, you know, with a little, little spinning thing. And you yeah. each player, and you, you probably played that. I know, Ethan Allen's all-star baseball game. But we were we were consumed by baseball, and it just seemed to stay with me. I always loved to play. I loved to coach kids. And uh, later on, I managed a, a Sunday league team for men. And uh, But 
I was always connected with baseball somehow. It's always been, you know, part of me. How did you get involved in journalism? It, I mean, it, it, I kind of chuckled when I read the introduction that you were still, in, I guess, finishing up your junior year of high school and you became a professional journalist. How did that happen? Yeah, yeah, that, uh, that was kind of odd because uh, I think it was the early in the summer after my junior year and I had been a uh, sports editor at junior high school there at Belleville. And I was a sports editor, the high news, we called it, in, at uh, Belleville Township High School. And um, I think I was working part-time at the uh, swimming pool, you know, checking people in and so on and so forth at Belleville. And one morning, uh, typically, I was sleeping late for, you know, I was a teenage kid, 16 <laughs> years old, sleeping late on a Saturday morning, as I recall. And my mom woke me up and said, hey, uh, Mr. Adam from the News Democrat wants to talk to you. I, ooh, I jumped up and talked to Joe Adam, but uh, to uh, to capsulize the story, they had lost their uh, sports writer. And in those days, the News Democrat had one sports writer, and uh, they needed somebody in a hurry. So they ca they called Miss Jasm, my uh, journalism teacher and the advisor for the student newspaper there at the high school. And uh, she recommended me. I was just, you know, skinny kid with thick glasses, and but I did know how to type. So <laughs> <laughs> you may not have been able to write, but you could type. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they they, um, they they put me to work that summer, and and uh, apparently I did okay. But I was the you know the one man sports staff there. I'd yeah go to work and, and uh, they kept me on during my senior year. Uh, they arranged with the high school to let me uh, work at the newspaper in the morning downtown. And then I'd get a bus or catch a ride out to the high school out on Main Street and go to school in the afternoon. And then maybe nights I'd go out and cover football game or basketball game or whatever was going on. So, yeah, that's how I got into it. And then, uh, of course, I went to the University of Missouri uh, which has a great uh, school of journalism. And uh, yeah. that worked out pretty well too. What was it like to cover your very first world series that just happened to involve your beloved Cardinals? Yeah, it, it, it kind of happened by chance, David, because at the time I was working for the Granite city, Illinois press record, uh, which came out twice a week, but it, it was Granite City, Illinois was Dal Maxwell's hometown. And Dal Maxwell, of course, was a reserve infielder at the time with the Cardinals, but Julian Javier, the regular second baseman, was hurt. So it turned out Dal Maxwell was going to play second base during the World Series. So I went to the, uh, the editor and I said, hey, you know, local guy's going to play second base in the World Series against the New York Yankees. Don't you think we ought to cover that? And they agreed. And uh, I covered the four games in St. Louis. I, he, press record budget didn't include a trip to New York. For the, <laughs> but, but they were the first two and then the, the last uh, two. And, and uh, the Cardinals won in seven games. And Maxwell played and, and did well. And uh, I, I wrote uh, a lot of stuff. And I was also a photographer at the time. Okay. I had this huge speed graphic camera, you know, with, oddly enough, it took Polaroid pictures. So <laughs> we had uh, picture spreads, we had 
uh, stories that I wrote and uh, worked out very well. And as it turned out, I was, I was able to use those clippings uh, to give a job at the, the, the Sporting News in 1965 as a as a young uh, editor. And uh, you know, I, I spent three years there. Uh, uh, learning about more about baseball and how to cover baseball and what went on in baseball. I, you know, I wrote class A notes for Pete's sake and uh, things like that. So I, re- I learned, uh, you know, the only way you really can is to learn things uh, from starting at the, the, the bottom up. So yeah. Did you ever consider doing, did you ever consider doing anything other than baseball, writing about baseball? Because obviously sporting news covered other sports as well. Oh yeah, no, I uh, I enjoyed other sports. Uh, you know, I played basketball. I played at football. I mean, I was always <laughs> doing all these things, and and uh, it wasn't that I didn't like the other sports. I I liked them, but uh, baseball always seemed to be uh, be my groove and and the thing that I associated with. Uh, you know, and then when I when I went to the uh, Post dispatch in uh, oh, in late 1968, uh, I was able to uh, talk to Bob Bragg, the uh, sports editor there, mm-hmm. uh, who also received the uh, <laughs> BBWA award uh, in Cooperstown. Um, but he he was a, a old time newspaper guy, and and uh, I finally talked to after I was there maybe three or four years uh, covering. Uh, Oh, college hockey and working the desk and covering auto racing and these kind of things. Um, I was able to convince him to let me uh, at least cover some uh, Cardinals games and and learn from uh, Neil Russo and Ed Wilkes, who were two fine writers uh, for the Post Dispatch, and uh, learn how to cover baseball on an everyday basis from guys who had done it for quite a while, and uh, I liked. It. And uh, ended up uh, as the everyday beat writer. And, um, but then, <laughs> as fate would have it, uh, the Post-Dispatch decided I'd make a great executive sports editor. Um, in other words, run the department, not necessarily be a, write a column, but run the department. And uh, so I, I started doing that. And... Um, when that happened, C.C. Uh, Johnson Spink over to Sporting News read that and, and decided, I need a new managing editor, new editor-in-chief over here. So, <laughs> so I heard from them, and they, they hired me in uh, oh, the end of 1979, I guess, to take over the Sporting News, which, of course, at that time was known as the Bible of baseball. Yeah. Yeah, you, you you talked about uh, early early career. I mean, born across the river in Illinois, um, well, working. Go ahead. Well, I uh, I enjoyed it, and uh, you know what happened in St. Louis was uh, eventually I ran out of newspapers. Um, <laughs> I I ended up. Uh, uh, writing a column uh, for the San Luis Globe Democrat for a couple of years. And um, 
after I after I left the uh, the Sporting News, and um, was a columnist there. But uh, I came home from the 1986 uh, World Series, and I saw a headline on the Post Dispatch newspaper box at Lambert Field when I got off the plane. It said the Globe Democrat went out of business. I said, "Uh oh, I better get in and uh, turn in my expense report." And uh, I did. (laughs) (laughs) So from that point, uh, uh, David, I I freelanced for a while in St. Louis, and then, as I say, I I was out of newspapers. So uh, I heard about a great opportunity in Kansas City covering the Royals, and really, uh, all of all the jobs I had in, in the newspaper business. Of all the things I'd done, being a beat writer was what I enjoyed doing the most. So when that position came open here at the uh, what was in the Times in the Star, um, I was able to get that job and uh, worked at it very happily for ooh, 16 years at the uh, Star and Times and uh, another 11 at uh, MLB.com. It was, you know, I was going to ask the Royals. Yeah, I was going to ask you what caused the move. So it was really the fact that your, the rug got pulled out from underneath you. It was no fault of your own that you you wanted to get back into the beat writing side of it. And and the opportunity was across the state. It wasn't anything about Kansas City necessarily, though, obviously, after retiring, you're still here. So you must have must have liked the community. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it's a great community to live in. And uh, I really enjoyed covering the Royals. I mean. Uh, I always tell people, I, I, in those 27 years, undoubtedly, I covered more losses than wins. But uh, there were some great times there, uh, great players. Uh, you know, uh, you know. I mean, where else could I go to cover George Brett's 3,000 hit? Yeah. And uh, well, I can tell you a little story about that, too. If you got a minute. Okay. Uh, go ahead. I, well, we were on the West Coast, and Gib Twyman, a uh, great uh, columnist for the Kansas City Star, was with me. We were cut, we were on the trail of, of Brett's 3,000 hit pursuit, and uh, George was uh, four short. We were in uh, Anaheim, and George four shoulder, so we weren't sure whether he was going to play or not. So, so uh, Gib and I decided to play Starsky and Hutch, and. Uh, we we went up to the doctor's office where we knew he was being examined, and we sat out in the waiting room, you know, <laughs> like like little detectives, you know, investigative reporters. And, and all of a sudden, George opened the door to the doctor's office there, and he, he looked out from the waiting room and saw us. He just laughed. He said, what are you guys doing here? You could just see George doing that. Yeah. So he said, we want to see whether you're going to play or not. Said, well. As it turned out, he did play. And, of course, he got uh, four hits uh, to reach uh, 3,000 that night. And um, I remember he, he was first two times up, he got singles. And after that second single, I, I called the Kansas City Star office. I said, guys, get ready because I think he's going to do it tonight. Yeah. Because, you know, get that feeling. And by golly, he did. Uh, got another single and then uh, got the 3,000th hit with a uh, drive. Well, it wasn't exactly a drive. It was a bouncer that went over 
the uh, shoulders of second baseman uh, get over and that 3,000 hit. Then uh, he also got uh, picked off first base after number 3,000. Yeah, I, I remember that. I was going to ask you about that because wasn't Gaetti the first baseman? Yeah. At yeah, the Gary time, Gaetti, and, and Gaetti congratulates him and then, <laughs> and then picks yeah. him off. Yeah. Yeah. Jim for for. Let's see if I can pronounce that. Fartugno, I believe his name was. He yeah. got the hit up, left-hander. And uh, so he, he got even. I had kind of, you know, chatted up George over there. And Fartugno, being a left-hander, made the move over there and picked off George. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. he, he did it three times. But um, it, it, that, was, that was great. That was a great night. I, I imagine George was, I, I, I know him, I don't. You know, if he saw me, if he, if he walked into the room where I was, he would recognize me and call me by name. But we're not we're not buddy buddy by any stretch. But I, I'll bet you covering George Brett was a was a highlight for you. Um, just, oh, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was always a, a hoot because, you know, George was a great player and, and uh, he he wasn't uh, bashful, of course, about anything. He just, you know, if he thought something, he'd tell you. And, and, um, he. he he was a, a very enjoyable guy to cover. In fact, everybody I, I covered with the Royals uh, basically w- was enjoyable because, you know, I, I did it for a long time. And, and uh, I think if, you know, if you gain the, the confidence and the respect of, uh, of players that they, they come to, to tell you things and, and they know you're not going to uh, do anything to embarrass them. You're, you're just right. gonna, uh, Get the facts and and report the news, but uh, yeah, uh, had some had some great players uh, and, and great, you know, like Bo Jackson. I mean, Bo's throw in Seattle, my yeah. gosh, that was something. I mean, the guy threw from the warning track; he was taking the ball off the wall. And I remember Harold Reynolds was on first base for the Mariners, and yeah, you know, he took off and. And uh, Bob Boone happened to be the catcher that night. So, and, uh, you know, Harold Reynolds was running out bases and heading for home. And uh, Booney was just kind of standing there casually, you know, that all of a sudden, <laughs> Booney yeah. springs in the act, grabs Bo's throw and tags Reynolds out. And and uh, Harold was just astounded. I, re- I remember uh, going down in the, uh, the Mariners clubhouse after the game and Harold Reynolds just sitting there looking at the videotape over and over again. He said, I don't know how he did it. I don't know how he did that. I don't know how he did it. Because Bo was, Bo was unbelievable. What an athlete. Oh, my God. Well, our, our mutual friend, Ryan Lefevre, uh, tells this story. His dad was the manager of the Mariners, and, and Ryan was, I think, home from college or something. He was visiting visiting his dad, and, and Jim Lefevre came out to argue uh, the play. And mm-hmm. right when he got back to the clubhouse after the game, Ryan said, what were you arguing? He was clearly out. He goes, I was, and I may be paraphrasing here. He said, I was saying that that was not a, he, that guy we have, I'm we're protesting. That guy is not human. What he did is not possible. So I have to argue <laughs> something. <laughs> <laughs> he was so right because 
Bo was just unbelievable. I mean, he just, he, he was almost like Superman. I mean, when he'd make a, a, a catch sometimes, it looked like he was literally flying through the air. Yeah. And I remember the uh, the game in uh, New York at the Yankee Stadium. Yeah. He hit three home runs. Boom, boom, boom. He hit three home runs. Then he, he dove for a ball in center field and sublexed his shoulder. So he had to leave the game. So he had um, three home runs in a row. And he was out, I think, over a month. Came back. Yeah. He, he, that happened on July 17, 1990. I have it written down here. Can't, didn't come back till August 26th at uh, Kaufman Stadium. Came up the bat. You know what he did? Boom, yeah. Another home run. <laughs> so now he had four home runs and four at-bats separated by over a month. Yeah. Now that's the kind of athlete and hitter and amazing guy that Bo Jackson was. Uh, I'm just sorry that he had to have that uh, hip replacement because, by golly, if he'd have stayed in one piece uh, his whole career, he might have gone in the Hall of Fame eventually. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Had he had he not been so good at football, he certainly had, I think he had the ability, baseball ability, uh, to be a Hall of Famer. Other than the other than the baseball side of it, and I think you understand where I'm going with this, who are some of the favorite ball players to cover in your career? Well, there were, there were a lot of them, you know, and you hate to single off anybody, but uh, we, we had some guys who developed as, you know, rather close friends, family friends like Mike Sweeney. Yeah. Uh, Frank White, uh, Carlos Beltran. Yeah. Uh, Carlos Fables, uh, Eric Hosmer, Alcides Escobar. Salvador Perez, Adoberto Mondesi, and God rest his soul, Ordano Ventura. They were mm-hmm. all good friends, enjoyable to talk to and to cover. And, and then you had Brett and Bo and uh, Hal McRae, Mike McFarlane, Alex Gordon, Willie Wilson, and some pitchers, Mark Gubazab, Brett Saberhagen, uh, Greg Holland was always good, Jeff, Jeff Montgomery. Uh, as you see him on TV all the time. He, he was great. Kevin Apier, Jeff Supon. There, there were so many uh, uh, guys that, you know, that, that you get close to and you enjoy talking to and, and not just, you know, pepper them with questions about the game or their, their career or anything, but just, you know, just guys that you talk to. And they, then you had some some characters that, that, that you remember uh, not only their characters and as well as talented players like Zach Greinke, uh, Rusty Meacham, Bye Bye Balboni, Billy Butler, Matt Stairs, Rod Dyson, Lorenzo Kane, Mark Quinn. Oh, remember Mark Quinn? Oh yeah, yeah. He was he had he had two home runs his first game as a Royal, and everybody had high hopes. But he was he was one of those free swingers. And uh, and he he didn't like to take a walk. You know? Yeah. And he I think he went something like uh, I don't remember exactly what number it was like 150 times at bat with the, the trips to the plate with no unintentional walks. And the manager was Tony Muser. And uh, one night 
I remember Quinn actually got a walk. And you know what happened. The yep. fireworks, which usually went off in those days when a Royal hit a home run, <laughs> went off because Quinn walked. <laughs> there were fireworks all over the place because Quinn drew a walk. And uh, uh, the suspicion was that uh, that Tony Mooser might have secretly talked to the, <laughs> <laughs> the fireworks people at a raise to have that in case in case Quiddy ever managed to draw four 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 balls and just get a walk. <laughs> that was never very Yeah, we were actually talking about that not too long ago uh, in the in the media dining room. And yeah. I think the the story, the correct story, <laughs> and I I did hear that rumor about Muser yeah. as well, is that the guy that, that operated that part of the scoreboard was looking down and heard the crowd erupt and thought he must have hit oh. a home run and hit the button. And then he sees <laughs> Quinn just walking to first base. And I guess Mark Quinn wasn't real happy about that, but <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. I, that, well, that's, that's probably what happened. But, uh, you know, yeah. over the years, the, the, the myth, you know, about the Vegas Grove. <laughs> but it was a funny. You mentioned funny Tony everybody Peter. except Quinn. You mentioned Tony Muser, Dick. The Royals have had some interesting managers. Which ones were your favorites uh, to to cover? Well, I, I check. I, I covered eight uh, eight full time managers. You know, not counting interims and you know Bob Schaefer and all those guys. Are, yeah. But uh, I went through John Waffen, uh, Buddy Bell, Bob Boone, Tony Muser, Tony Pena. Hal McCray, Trey Hillman, and Ned Yost, uh, and you know they they all had their uh, positives. I I, I can remember uh, oh crazy things like uh, well Muser was always a, a character, but Tony Pena one one night in uh, where were we? We were somewhere in the uh, on the road. Uh, he got uh, he got angry about something and and walked in the shower room with his uniform on. Took the shower with yeah uniform. I don't remember what that was about, but but Hal McRae was was a very great guy to, to talk to. Uh, he would sit there and I remember one night we were sitting there talking to him about baseball. He was in his office there in the clubhouse. We were so engrossed in talking. He said. Oh my gosh! I gotta get out there. Batting practice is starting. You know, things like that. <laughs> um, of course, uh, Duke Watson was great. Buddy Bell was good. Bob Boone. Bob Boone was always very intelligent, and you know, it was always deep thinking. Uh, always trying to do things. I think. I think Booney tried to do everything himself, which probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't help, but uh, you know, all managers have their ways of, of dealing with people, and uh, um, yeah. And Ned Yost was the last one I covered. I I got along great with Ned. He I had a lot of respect for Ned. He was a, an old time baseball guy. Yeah, and I, I love those kind of guys. That, um, you know, uh, Trey Hillman was more of a modern. Kind of guy came over from Japan, had a lot of modern ideas. But Ned Yost, on the other hand, was more of a 
an old-fashioned kind of guy, you know, yeah. and he he really didn't particularly like sitting around before a game and yakking with us reporters, but uh, he was always good, answered the questions. Yeah. And um, I had a lot of respect for Ned. I really it, Ned had his, had a unique way of answering questions. He always, from my vantage point, he always wanted to have the upper hand. And so, you know, it, he would, the re, us reporters would say, you know, if he would answer us in like Nate Bucati was the one who would get it the most. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he would say, he would say, Ned, beautiful blue sky out here. No, no, not really. It's actually a beautiful blue sky. <laughs> you know, he would answer yes, but he would say no first. Did you ever get yosted? No, no, I, I don't remember ever getting yosted at all. Uh, no, we had a, we had a good uh, working relationship. I thought I, I'm sure he gave me a few zingers over over the years, but um, you know, I just brush him off like uh, like I'm sure I maybe gave him a few. I don't remember, but yeah, no, we. We had great respect for each other. And he, he told me, I, I told him one time after he said he was going to leave the uh, the job. And I said, man, Ned, I really have a lot of respect for you. And he said, well, I always had a lot of respect for you. And that is important. That's what you work for. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit of personal stuff before we wrap up here. You battled cancer a few years back. And I don't know if you were aware of it, but there was great concern uh, in the press box among your colleagues and m- most of us uh, would consider ourselves your friends as well. What was your attitude during that time? Cause we were, there was some thought that you weren't going to make it through that. What was your attitude during that time? Yeah, that was around 2006 and uh, uh, doctors detected three large masses of cancer in my liver. And the doctor told me uh, nothing they could do that, uh, too much, and uh, you had maybe three months to live, six months maybe. And uh, I said, "Oh, gee, well, I was just ready to go home." And uh, as he said, "Enjoy your last few months." And uh, but uh, my bride Betty said, "Uh," uh-uh. and uh, she made sure that uh, I saw other doctors, and uh, pretty soon uh, uh, one of the doctors was able to reduce the size of one of the cancerous masses and I qualified for a liver transplant and um, in February 2007 I got a transplant of a liver which of course saved my life I'm still here mm-hmm. and, uh, um, I was, and really I was back on the job covering the uh, Royals by the end of May they told me I wouldn't be back till at least the middle of July around the all-star break but I got back at the, the end of May that year and um and then, you know, one thing I, I, I always appreciated what the doctors did and what Betty did and, and what the, uh, what, what God did for me. Um, I wanted to, sh- I wanted to show people that, um, you know, a transplant and a condition as serious as that can be overcome. And, uh, you, you, with a transplant, you can, you can live a full and productive life and contribute something to the world. So I uh, talked to uh, Jim Banks from MLB.com before the 2011 season. And I said, Jim, I want to cover all 162 games because 
you know, no, nobody did that. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a, it's quite a grind, you know, travel and mm-hmm. being there every day and, and writing about every game. But I wanted to do it to show people that it could be done to a transplant recipient and uh, somebody who was, you know, supposed to die. So um, I did do that. I did 162 and, uh, and I was happy to do it. And uh, I, uh, they did a story on MLB.com about it. And, uh, you know, I think that at least demonstrated to people that you can overcome things like this to live a full and productive life and do things that you want to do. And, um, and I did, I, I was happy to do it. And, you know, it wasn't that tough. You know, everybody says, Ooh, 162, all 162 games, you know, in normal season, you cover maybe 130 or something like that and take time off and so on and so forth. But, um, 162 every day. Um, and what people don't think, you know, think about is you spent a lot of long nights in the press box, a lot of long days uh, before the game, talking to people. Uh, they're, they're long days. They're long nights. Yeah. Uh, you, you get home at two in the morning and things like that, but and a lot, a lot of long trips and, and a lot of waiting around for airplanes and things like that. You didn't, uh, I didn't travel with the team. I traveled commercial. So sure. you, you- it wasn't, uh, it wasn't easy, but I, I, I really enjoyed doing it. I, I told everybody, I said, hey, this wasn't that bad. I could do this every year. Yeah. You probably got tired of me in those early years after the, after the transplant. Every time I'd see you, how you feeling? <laughs> <laughs> well, you were nice to ask. <laughs> I was feeling great. <laughs> let, me, let me ask you this, and you kind of alluded to it a little bit, but how did, did baseball help you get through that recovery time? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, even, even when you're recovering, you're watching the games on TV or yeah. following the game. You you know the you know the guys that are playing you know the guys that are coaching you know the guys that are yeah. running the games and um, you know you 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 learn to anticipate things and and uh, yeah that that keeps you going you you want to get back yeah and I remember the doctor in uh, not too long after the surgery um, and he said you know they they how are you feeling you know market one to ten you know or something <laughs> yeah you know how they are. And I'd say, well, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm probably an eight. He said, what do we have to do to get you back to a 10? I said, send me back to the ballpark. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I've got to ask you what keeps you busy. You know, I still see you in the press box. Um, Even though you're, quote, retired, what keeps you busy? Yeah, I don't. Since the pandemic, I've only been up there, I think, once or twice. Uh, I, I try to stay out of people's way because, you know, uh, space is limited these days with the pandemic and everything. Uh, after I retired, uh, uh, I, I did go up there every home game. And, and, you know, you just try to stay out of people's way, but talk to people and, and keep informed and, and um, you know, yada, yada. And, and <laughs> thing that ball writers do when they're they're not uh, actually sitting down and watching a game uh, but yeah I, I enjoy being in the press box i hope uh, i hope it gets back to the fact that 
the press boxes are more open and, and we don't have to worry about a, a pandemic and all that kind of thing that we are going through now. But I mean, it's a universal thing, so yeah, it's not confined to press box. But, you know, you try to be careful. You try to not to impose on people. I don't. Uh, I do have a, a gold uh, writer's card from the uh, Baseball Writers Association. Um, so I can uh, use that to go basically in any ballpark, I guess, in the country or any press box. But I hate to impose. I, I like to, you know, get advance uh, notice to anybody I'm going to come and see or so on and so forth. But, uh, yeah, I, I enjoy being around the press box. It's always been kind of my second home, and uh, I love it. Uh, now yeah. I spend a lot of time on the stands, so but I, I still keep score every game. Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm sure I've seen, you know, when I'm not at the game and I'll be watching it on TV, uh, as you said, you know, when you're not covering it, you're still watching it. And I've seen many times when they'll show you in the stands uh, and, you know, you're, you're writing something down and I'm thinking, I'll bet he's keeping his scorebook. Um, and yeah. I, I will tell you this, Dick, that uh, as a, you know, as a fellow writer and, and somebody who's admired your work for a long time, when you come in there, you're not imposing. You saw the reaction when you were there during uh, a recent series and you came in and we were all sitting around the table. And I was like, hey, Dick Cagle's here. I mean, that's that's not a reaction you get uh, if you're imposing on anybody. You are still very welcome in there. And we all look forward to uh, having you back out there on a regular basis. Well, thank you, David. I hope to get out there uh, maybe next year. I'll be able to get out there more often. And uh, that's very nice of you to say that. I appreciate that. All right. I, I always like to wrap up with this question and you can answer it in whatever, whatever way you want. I get different people even interpreting the question differently, but I'll, I always ask the last question. What is your legacy? Well, if I was going to advise young journalists, whether or not they want to be baseball writers, just work hard, be accurate, be courageous, hit your deadline. And remember, when you ask the right questions, you'll get the right answers. And you'll earn the respect that you need to be successful. That's my legacy. There you go. All right, my friend. It's always good to catch up with you. I appreciate the time very much. And you have a great day. Been fun, David. Thank you. And good luck to you, buddy. Thanks for listening to Sports Connections with David Smale. Make sure to subscribe, follow, and rate the show from your favorite podcast platform. You can learn more about David Smale and his work by visiting davidsmalebooks.com. Don't forget to join us weekly for new episodes. Until next time.